you can grab your Bibles and go to Galatians chapter 2, we're going to read from verse 11 through to the end of the chapter, but our focus is really four verses at the start of it, uh, verses 11 through to 14 are the focus verses. This is a continuation of our systematic teaching in the letter of Galatians written by Paul, and today's title is Paul versus Peter. Uh, You'll see why as we read through it. So Galatians chapter 2, reading from verse 11. When Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because He was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. (coughs) Our four focus verses here uh, show the importance of fighting for the purity of the true gospel of God. We see it in a high stakes public face off between two heavyweight apostles. Paul and Peter, in the early days of the first century churches of God and it seems to have happened when the church was gathered for one of its services because it's seen by everybody the gospel of God and that's part of the reason for Paul's writing is to remind the people in Galatia of what the gospel of God is it's the good news that Jesus Christ the son of God is the only saviour the only one who can save us from our sinful selves And that he is God's salvation gift by his grace that's to be received by faith alone. That pure gospel cannot be distorted. It can't be divided up and it can't be portioned out to suit our own preferences or our cultural conditioning and the cultural norms that we live in. This whole letter of Galatians was written by the Apostle Paul To a group of churches of God, at least four, maybe five of them, maybe more. 
and it was in the Roman province of Galatia, which is in modern-day central Turkey. Uh, these were interconnected churches of God, churches of believers established as a result of their trust in the gospel they'd heard through the preaching of Paul and Barnabas. And you read about that in Acts chapter 13 and 14. Now these churches were united by their doctrines and their practices. And that's why it's a single letter addressing all of those churches on the same issue. Because they'd all succumbed to this dangerous distorted gospel. Because they were hearing something that was a departure from what Paul and Barnabas had originally preached to them. In those early days, back in the first century, just after the Lord has been here and has returned to heaven after completing his mission and his work to save us, we see the result of the preaching of the true, pure gospel. Firstly, it resulted in salvation for individuals who trusted in Christ as Saviour. That's always a personal thing, personal response to the personal gospel that comes to us about Jesus. And secondly, that those saved individuals were then gathered together as disciples of the Lord Jesus, honouring his lordship in a unity of practice that was then expressed in this fellowship of churches, all doing the same thing under the same teaching of the same Lord, who was also their saviour. The gospel has not changed since then. And the outcome, therefore, doesn't change either, and it shouldn't. That's why we continue today to fight for the purity and the simplicity of the gospel of God. Because it impacts the individual, and it affects church service. Now, this gospel that Paul and Barnabas and others were preaching was in no way restricted. Um, we see both Jews, the Old Testament people of God, who for a while thought it was just their privilege, and Gentiles, non-Jews, trusting in Jesus as the only saviour and continuing to follow him as Lord. It was for everybody. And we see repeatedly in the New Testament that that gospel, when it came to Jew or Gentile, to anybody, in any place, it transformed the individual's life, it changed their thinking, and therefore their behaviour. And the result of that was groupings of people united in the fellowship of churches, um, giving expression to what the Lord had prayed for, that disciples would be together in one unity for the glory of God. Again, I say it, the gospel hasn't changed, so the outcome shouldn't change either. Now, Paul's letter here was a really serious one. And it was shortly after, I believe it was written shortly after his and Barnabas's first run through that area preaching the gospel. And then they've come back probably to Antioch, which was their, their base of operations. It was a Gentile church up in Syria because the gospel had spread from Jerusalem this far by this point. I believe they'd gone through and they'd come back and he was writing this serious letter because he'd heard bad reports of what was happening in Galatia. Judaizers, as they were known, were Jewish Christians who were insisting that you had to be circumcised if you were a male and adhere to the laws of the Old Testament that um, 
shaped the whole life of a Jewish person, you had to adhere to those strictly if you were truly saved. They insisted that those Jewish law customs and regulations were necessary for true salvation. And as that message was being shared by these people in the churches, it was unsettling the churches. Paul's already said that. And it was upsetting them. And it was bringing about division. So these Gentile believers, the non-Jews, were being told by these people who had come through after Paul and Barnabas that they had to do something more than have simple, absolute trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. They were being told they had to be circumcised. Makes you wince if you're a bloke. And you had to adhere to all these, um, these regulations which would have just curtailed things so much for everybody. They were being told essentially this, that they had to bring their own goodness as evidenced in their rule-keeping and then add that to Christ's sacrifice to be sure they were saved. And that's actually an attractive gospel because it appeals to the human heart and because we're not good at trusting God and taking him at his word. We've already spoken about that a few weeks ago. So this was a serious twisting and distortion of the gospel. A distortion of its purity and its simplicity. Why is this so important? It's because of the result of that. You could have people thinking they were saved when in fact they weren't. That's frightening. Like the people back then, if we are counting in any way on our own goodness and our adherence to a moral code, whether that's one that we've been brought up with or one we've gathered from society or one we've invented for ourselves, if we are counting on our own goodness and adherence to that moral code to be sure of earning salvation with God, then we aren't Trusting solely in the grace of God. The Bible tells us that we're not saved. To use Bible language, we're still lost. And if we believe that we're good enough for God already, but just in case, it's best to believe in Jesus like an insurance policy then the Bible tells us we're still dead in our sins because we're rejecting what God has clearly said is necessary for salvation. What is necessary for salvation? It is absolute trust and reliance in who Jesus Christ is and what he achieved in his life and in his death and in his resurrection and in his ascension. It's that alone. And it's trusting that absolutely alone and not bringing anything of ourselves. You know, when we bring something of ourselves, we're telling God that he's not enough. And we're telling God that Jesus is not enough. Rejecting God and what he has said is rebellion. We're all really good at that. Because we're born into this system of life as little rebels who grow into bigger rebels as life goes on. It takes us away from God increasingly 
And even as believers, we still have those tendencies <coughs> and rejecting God when he says that we should do something and we choose to bring ourselves because we think we know better. That's what sin is. We've been over this already, but we're repeating it again because it's so vital. Chapter 2, verse 11, then back to our, our text. It tells us that Cephas, um, from now on we'll call him Peter, because that's what we know him as. Uh, Cephas was the name the Lord gave to him, and it does translate as Peter. He came to visit Antioch, this um, home church base for Paul and Barnabas. And what we learn is shocking. That even Peter, this great leader, apostle, an early pillar of the churches of God, was being himself compromised by this distorted gospel. Peter has already shown a tendency to succumb to circumstances. Now, we're not in any position to criticise him here. Because we all do exactly the same thing. None of us would dare to say we're any different. But Peter's example is here for us to learn from. Peter's reaction to circumstances, as we have it recorded for us in the New Testament, showed how he would bring a human way of approaching life and a human way of working out God's things as being easier and more acceptable than just taking God at his word. Do you remember when the Lord told his disciples, after Peter had said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus says, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem. I'm going to be taken by the leaders. I'm going to be um, flogged. And I'm, I'm going to be crucified. On the third day I will rise again. Do you remember what we read in Matthew 16? It says that Peter said, that'll never happen to you. You're the Messiah. That doesn't happen to the Messiah. And the Lord's response was, get behind me, Satan. Here was Peter bringing his human understanding face to face with God who was telling him what was going to happen and saying no God I know better than you when the Lord Jesus later then in their experience was taken as a captive and taken off by the chief priests and the leaders of the people and taken into the courtyard for the, the mock trial Peter in the upper room just before that had happened said I will go with you to death and we see him by the fire in the courtyard. And he's asked three times, you were with that man, weren't you? And by the end of it, he's swearing with oaths and curses and saying he's not. He denied the Lord three times because of circumstances. Peter had to be lovingly restored by the Lord after that. And we read about that in John 21. And we're so thankful that we have it. And we see the Lord's... Um, passion for Peter on the day of his resurrection he says you, you go and tell Peter he was going to bring this man back from where he had fallen to because of circumstances bringing his own thinking into things but here in Galatians 2 15 to 20 years after Peter has spent time with the Lord Jesus Christ we see Peter giving in to circumstances again and maybe it's going to be something that impedes the progress of God and what God has said 
You know, Peter had been clearly instructed, and we read about it in Acts chapter 10. He'd clearly been instructed through a repeated dream from God that this gospel was to go to the Gentiles. It wasn't the preserve of the Jews. And he was the one, Peter was, that was sent to preach the gospel to Cornelius, the Roman centurion, and the people who were gathered in his household. And he witnessed the salvation of those people. The Holy Spirit coming to give life to Gentiles. And it was that amazing moment when Peter came to understand that this gospel was not just for Jews wherever they were in the world, but was for everybody in the world. Peter even had to go back to Jerusalem after that and explain his actions because the leadership back in Jerusalem thought the gospel was just for Jews. And he went back and told them, no, God's grace extends to everyone. You read about that in Acts 11. So it then seems that after that Antioch, as the gospel started to spread and Gentiles were, were coming to faith, that Antioch became a, a key Gentile church location. And Barnabas, who was a Levite, who was working in Jerusalem but came to faith, he was a, an interesting character and had some prominence in the churches. He was sent up to Antioch to see what was happening. And when he was there, he went off to find Saul, Paul, and bring him into the work of preaching the gospel. It then seems that sometime after that, Peter must have come up and visited Antioch too. And it seems, it doesn't seem, it is clear that he was influenced by the pressure that came from what's called in the NIV translation, the Jewish Circumcision Party. These Jewish believers who still insisted that you had to be circumcised and abide by the Jewish uh, regulations for salvation. So when some of them came up, and it says interestingly in Paul's letter that sent by James. So was James the Lord's brother even wavering in this, this point? I might be pushing it too far. But it says when they come up from James, Peter who had been enjoying this new freedom that had come about because he realised that Jews and Gentiles were together, <coughs> saved by God's grace, and the regulations <coughs> of the Old Testament Jewish way were no longer important for salvation, but the principles were still there. I'm not saying we reject the Ten Commandments. We don't. The Ten Commandments, all nine, nine of them are repeated in the New Testament. One is not. And they still apply in principle to us today. It was these other things that the Jews were saying were particular markers of their specialness that they had to adhere to. So these people were coming up and Peter, who had previously been enjoying this eating with Gentiles and the whole business of kosher food went, went out the window. He suddenly had a, a whole new diet getting tucked into the pork and things like that. Um, he, he stopped mixing with them when these Jewish circumcision party chaps came up. He, he withdrew. And 2 verse 12 says, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. So Peter was afraid. Here was a pillar of the church with all the authority of an apostle sent by Jesus with the conviction as to who Jesus was, was afraid of people. People pleasing. 
we're all guilty of that too. Now, because he was stepping away, others were influenced too. And what did that result in? It resulted in a divided church. Divided on lines of race and culture. And God does not want that. God has said that the gospel is for everybody. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that Jews and Gentiles, the barrier of the dividing wall was broken down and they come together in something that is glorious for God. And the house of God is to be a representation of that on earth, of people of all nations together in unity of service, showing that God's gospel is for every person regardless of race and cultural heritage. So we see that Peter's departure from the purity of the gospel and his people-pleasing resulted in division. So Paul confronts Peter to his face. It's actually quite shocking that we have this in the Bible, but it shows you the, the goodness of God to show us that there are times when we need to be faced up with something. It's here for a reason. 2 verse 14 says that Paul saw that they, Peter and the others, were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Peter's actions, do you get it? Peter's behaviour was demonstrating that he had moved from simple belief in the pure gospel of God and this freedom that it brings. He had moved from that. So his influenced mind resulted in a change of behaviour and that influenced other people. Departure from the truth of the gospel negatively impacts our thinking and also our behaviour because our behaviour flows from our thinking. And that in turn, this is important because we see it here, impacts the culture and condition of the church we're a part of. And this applies to everyone, not just leaders. Our behaviour, the outflow of our thinking about God and the truth of the gospel impacts the culture and condition of the churches we're part of. So we all have a responsibility to take hold of what is true and let our minds be fixed on that and then our behaviour to show what it should. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through to 20, the Lord Jesus told his disciples how they were to deal with interpersonal sin in the church context. Often things that would happen between people in the church, which would be privately experienced. And he was hoping that often a conversation between the parties that were offended could sort it out and nobody would know anything about it and the matter would go on. But if it wasn't, then there was this escalation of, uh, of the seriousness of it until such a point that this thing could not be dealt with uh, privately, it had to be brought to the church and dealt with. You can see that the impact of the sin of one affects the culture and condition of the church. So Jesus said that properly dealing with that interpersonal sin in the church setting results in an increased experience of Christ's presence in that church you know the text, Matthew 19 and 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. That just doesn't mean a gathering of people and Jesus is there with Christians. It comes at the end of that section, he's saying, when two or three gather in my name, because they've dealt with the problem of sin, 
then you'll know that I'm with you. Because I am the one who has brought about the reconciliation. So the Lord gives us teaching about interpersonal sin. But what we're dealing with here in Galatians 2 is the basis of the gospel. And that's at stake. It's not interpersonal sin. This is not something that would be dealt with privately in the hope that then it would be dealt with and nobody else would need to know about it. Here was Peter being faced up by Paul to his face because his hypocrisy and his heresy had been public. It was faced up there and then. It'd be like Steve jumping out of his chair right now and facing up to me in front of you all and challenging me about something that I would say and have demonstrated in my behaviour. I know you'd like to see it, but it's not going to happen. I'd win anyway. Um, but Paul could not let this one pass. 2.21. I read on because Paul's put this all together in a little section. I'm not going to stray into David King's section for next week, but I just wanted you to look at verse 21. The latter part of that, Paul says, For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So why the face-off? The face-off because Christ did die for something. His sacrifice was not for nothing. When Peter, his thinking is affected, and that influences Barnabas too, and this is serious, it has to be addressed there and then, up front, in full view of everybody. So they see what the outcome is. Because the distortion of the gospel that was there was going to blow the churches apart. And that couldn't be the case. Just to say again, when we say that Christ died for us, but that we must do something else, extra, just to be sure, then we're saying that Christ's death is inadequate and ineffective. And that's sin. And that's why Paul face Peter up in the congregation. In setting Galatians 2 alongside the Acts account, it's, it's not a straightforward thing. And there's an element of guesswork that comes into it. I'm going to suggest that the visit of Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem that was mentioned earlier in chapter 2 doesn't relate to them going up to the Jerusalem council as it's mentioned in Acts 15. I think if you were to sit down you would see that it probably sits better with a visit that they made in Acts 11. When they went up with famine relief. And there are two reasons for that. In Galatians 2 itself, just, just very quickly. Uh, earlier in the chapter, and Steve dealt with this last week, there's a mention of a private meeting. And it seems there was a private meeting between Paul and Barnabas. And um, there were three pillars of the church. It wasn't a public thing. It wasn't like the council or the conference of, of overseers. We read about that in Galatians 2 verse 9. And it also says in Galatians 2 verse 2 that he went up in response to a revelation. Now, in the context of the way Paul speaks of re revelations in Galatians, it's something he received from the Lord. But I think it was probably coincident with the prophet Agabus, who in Acts 11 came up to Antioch and said, there's going to be a, a famine in Judea. And the response then was that the church said, well, we should give something to help the people back in Judea, in Jerusalem. So Paul and Barnabas head off with whatever they've gathered to go and help the churches. So I think that Galatians 2 occurs prior to the Jerusalem Council or the Jerusalem Conference of 
apostles and elders in Acts 15. So, what's the reason for saying this? This confrontation between Paul and Peter happens before that council. And it has the required outcome. Peter is rescued. Barnabas is rescued. Let's read in Acts chapter 15. (coughs) Turn there with me, please. Acts 15. This is the account of that gathering of the apostles and the elders to actually address this issue of is circumcision and regulations necessary for salvation? So Paul and Barnabas have had to go up because this thing has flared up in Antioch. And he's had the face off with Peter. So they're going up there because it's still rumbling around and they need to deal with it. Look at verse 5 of Acts 15. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, who stood up? Peter. Peter got up and addressed them, brothers. You know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe. It is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Just, yeah, just as they are. Here was Peter, I believe, having had his encounter with Paul, his face off there, now a convinced man brought back. And Barnabas too, from this failure and this distortion of the gospel that gripped their thinking that was then affecting their behaviour that was bringing in division, it had been dealt with and Peter had been brought back. And here he is, a convinced man in Acts 15. He's the first, it would seem, to stand up with the conviction of who he is and the authority that he has and the experience he's been through to say, they're saved just like us. They're saved by grace, through faith. They don't need to be circumcised. So let's not insist that they have to be. We thank God that Peter was reminded of how the gospel should influence personal behaviour for the preservation of the right culture in the churches. His own rescue meant the churches, certainly for this foreseeable future, were rescued from failure to We have to thank God that on the basis of what we read that this face-off resulted in reinforced unity. If you read on in Acts 15, the output of the conference was a was a letter that was circulated to all the churches. Notice it's to all churches. Churches of God, together in a fellowship, united in their belief and in their practice. And the letter to all churches affirms that salvation is by grace. All of God, received through faith alone, and that no Jewish custom observance was necessary to secure God's favour and salvation and unity was preserved now if you go on and read that letter you'll see as well that there was a recommendation that the Gentiles just didn't 
rub the Jews' noses in their freedoms. There was this business of not doing something so they wouldn't stumble other people. But there was no insistence on circumcision and other restrictions. We see Peter brought back from the brink. We see Barnabas, who was influenced, brought back from the brink. We see the churches. By the end of this letter, we're going to see that Paul's laid it all out to appeal to them. Come back from the brink. Don't move away from the gospel and get yourselves limited and restrained and constrained by things. When what God wants for you is that you would live free in service together in churches of God. Let's pray.